0: Welcome home. This is Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home podcast. Aspire Design and Home is both seeker and storyteller of the sublime in living. This is your global guide to in-depth and varied views of beauty and shelter that stirs the imagination. It delights and inspires both homeowners and design professionals alike by collaborating with emergent and eminent architects artisans, designers, developers, and tastemakers. Aspire seeks and shares captivating design experiences that savor the subjects and takes you on a journey through stunning imagery. And now, behind the scenes, with the creators themselves, Aspire Design and Home is an international narrative and resource for all seeking the sublime. In this episode of the show, you are going to hear from artist Hubert Phipps and art curator and gallery administrator, Ty Cooperman. We all have partnerships that require a bond built on mutual respect and trust, not many greater than that of gallery curator and artist. An artist must trust the curator to assemble the experience by which people will engage with the work. That engagement becomes the total user experience, and that experience will define what the end user sees, feels, and it begs the question, did that experience match the artist's vision? We are going to explore this and other ideas about art, public, personal collections, and a whole range of topics that include Rocket, Phipps' newest installation that captures the spirit of adventure and exploration. How serendipitous that this was installed at a time when we are seeing another space race between billionaires to see who can fund the recreational space experience. Hubert Phipps is a Renaissance man with a mind that always seems to be gearing up ways to expand on ideas of mobility and creative thought. Tyler Cooperman has a level approach to the business of art that starts with a deep dive into the work and the thoughts, hopes, dreams, and vision behind it. His passion carries this. He's able to craft the experience through manipulation of the environment to skew that experience in a predetermined direction. The experience itself becomes a complementary performance for the benefit of all who come to see the work. This is such a delicate balance between artist and curator, and we explore all of it a little further here on Curated Chill. If you enjoy what you're hearing, check out all of the related links in the show notes that will immerse you in the infinitely creative Aspire design and home ecosystem and make sure you are subscribing to curated Chills so you don't miss a single episode of the podcast you can find the show everywhere you get your favorite podcasts i wanted to actually start with a little bit of background and hubert i want to i want to start with you i think your i think your background is absolutely fascinating between that of a sculptor artist race car driver i think you i think your background is is fantastic can you just sort of share your, your journey, um, personally and professionally, and sort of how, how we got
1: to where we are today. I, I grew up in rural Virginia, and, and if I thought when I was a child that I would be living this life as a sculptor and an artist and would have had anything to do with automobile racing, I would have been you know, way beyond my imagination. But one of the things that I was drawn to uh, as a, early on was, the, was airplanes, automobiles, boats, trains, these things fascinated me, the beauty of these uh, of, uh, and, and mechanics. And I put together, um, you know, back then um, we had uh, plastic models. I put together, glued together plastic models of World War II aircraft, things like P-51s and I had a train set in my bedroom. So, I think that's probably the genesis. Um, I mean, these were just toys and automobiles. Um, I, had, I was just attracted to automobiles of all eras at a very early age. And my family was um, uh, somewhat equestrian centered, and I was not. Uh, I mean, I enjoyed okay riding horses, but I wanted my first, I wanted that Honda mini bike uh, when I was eight years old, that's all I wanted. And, um, and I didn't get it. I got some, uh, my father gave me some off brand, uh, mini bike. I don't know why he selected that one to call it Gorelli. I don't think that company even exists today. And I was probably eight or nine years old. And collectively we knew so little about how these things operated. We just threw gas in there and it's the engine seized off in less than half a mile because it was a two stroke motor and we were to of mixed oil in there. That's
0: so funny. Um, I, I I love that, and and also just sort of your your upbringing and your your interest in in art. As I understand it, it came from an early introduction to to political cartoons.
1: So I under, I, I felt and I understood that I had an ability to draw, and so um, anatomy or figurative drawing interests me. But in relationship to these um, political cartoons, and it had nothing to do with the politics, Josh, it was that these uh, late 1800s, early 1900s political cartoons for, my father was in the publishing business, so he had compendiums of uh, of these drawings. And what fascinated me is how well drawn they were, the draftsmanship, the detail, the expressiveness of these caricatures were, were fascinating and I would spend hours transcribing them and it was like I would look at the clock and I would thought I, I thought I'd been there for 15-20 minutes and and two hours had gone by. I,
0: I love how that works. So Ty, welcome to the conversation. Um, I'm, I'm interested in your background as well between you know the 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 education in art history and the, the work as and I'm fascinated by this too. The, the work is as you know, brand manager on one side to gallerist and curator on the other. Um, yes. Tell me about the journey.
2: Um, so, I'm my, my quintessential line is that I'm a 26 year old gay guy trapped in the body of a 65 year old Jewish woman. And I think my, my career history kind of exemplifies that. Um, Believe it or not, I I actually started doing marketing and brand work back when I was 14. Um, I'd figured out online marketing at a very young age and was so scared of anybody knowing that I was basically just a child. uh, That the internet served as a great sort of safe haven for me to develop businesses and do all these sort of uh, interesting intersections between art and technology at a young age. And as I got older, you know, having, uh, having always heard the arts sort of poo-pooed as a, as a professional option, uh, believe it or not, I was actually on what one might call the finance bro path to start, the big floor consulting, uh, real estate development sort of thing. And I took, uh, while I was at Claremont McKenna in California, I took a really amazing art history class on visual Jewish culture, actually. And it just so immediately opened my eyes to the fact that this is what I'm supposed to be studying and this is what I'm supposed to be doing that I dropped everything, uh, left college, reapplied, basically 180 my whole life, moved back to New York City uh, and, and immediately pursued art at uh, art history at NYU. And simultaneously to this, you know, I was back in New York, I'm a born and raised New Yorker, happy to be back in the city and and something that so immediately struck me was the fact that there were a tremendous number of young artists here who regardless of whether or not they had access to to an art school even those with MFAs were coming out with very little understanding of financial and contract literacy in terms of the arts as well as just general sets of you know career management and and Uh, both short and long-term planning, and I immediately wanted to apply the skills I had already developed to my my burgeoning love of of art and art history, Uh, so I started a queer art collective with my very good friend Des, who uh, is now actually the community manager at V-Files, which is another great cultural institution in New York City, Um, and and immediately just developed a great network of artists, particularly in New York, Uh, one of whom was Sienna Burrito, who's actually sitting next to me now, and uh, is works with me at pw uh, which which is amazing and and we really uh, we've really found this great balance of I think taking a shrewd business mindset and combining it with a true passion for the arts and artists um, and that means not only being, great shepherds for the art, but for the people who create it. Uh, and what I love so much, especially working with artists like Hubert, is that they're so, they're so excited not only about their own work, but to to bring it to the world at large. And, and I I just feel endlessly lucky to to get to be a part of that process.
0: Very cool. And and let's let's dig into that a little bit. And you know, because this is a conversation, not a QA, um, you know, jump in when whenever you want. Um, uh, Hubert, I'm gonna I'm gonna actually start with with you on this one because you know Rocket being your your most recent piece, and by the way, knowing that things like this go through years and years of planning, and knowing how even up to the point of last night with the with the first civilian crew launched into orbit, and the the billionaire space race that we're in now. It's just amazing to me that this particular subject matter came to you and is so perfectly synchronized with, with the launch, no pun
1: intended, of, of this particular piece. It's amazing, right? It's, it's mind boggling and I had not planned it. It was not a part of, of any scheme on my part. Um, oddly, um, a lot of these sculptures come from drawings that when I sit down with my sketchbook, um, and particularly with scope with a rocket, I did not sit down to to draw or design a rocket. Um, I put some lines down on the paper. A lot of times, I just look at these and see what shapes are. I, I let the I let the marks on the paper speak to me, and this is what happened with rocket. And I got a, and so I have a collection of these drawings. Uh, in books and in pads and in drawers, and when I decide that I'm going to, you know, move on a project, I select one of these, and I selected this drawing of a rocket, and um, so I had. It was no thought to, you know, the current events related to um, aerospace and, and these billionaires' uh, projects, which I find really fascinating. Also, which was um, quite coincidental uh, or beyond my, my scheme, was that this rocket sculpture would end up at the Boca Raton uh, Innovation Campus. Uh, I could not think of, uh, to this time, a, a more perfect setting. And with Marcel Breuer's brutalistic design of that building and the scale that I had created it in, So this sculpture was selected by the, um, you know, this uh, Art in Public Places initiative spearheaded by the Boca Raton Museum of Art, but I had already begun this project in the scale. I had another location, and um, it was uh, the director of the Boca Raton Museum of Art, Urban Lippman, intervened. And said, we would like to have this as part of our Art in Public Places initiative at the brick campus. And when I saw the campus and the building, um, it was just, um, it, it couldn't be more perfect. I couldn't have planned it that way, Josh.
0: Isn't that the best? Isn't that the best when it just, when it sort of comes to you? Um, and, and by the way, you know, sort of backing away from this particular piece and into the the, the concept of of public art, Ty, mm-hmm. is it not amazing? I mean, I'm it's fascinating for me to watch how public art in the past, I want to say five years, has has absolutely exploded more than, than any time I can really remember in the absolutely. past globally, right?
2: Absolutely. I mean, I think, I think there are a couple a couple different forces that, that, have, that have helped bring that to fruition. Um, one of which somewhat, uh, somewhat perhaps ironically is actually the internet and the ability for art to exist in these non-physical spaces. I think, uh, you know, for so long, you really had to have a very particular form of access uh, whether that be, uh, you know, economic or academic, uh, it was very limited, but with this, you know, boom of, of the internet and global communication, uh, we're all able to get bits and pieces of these amazing aesthetic and cultural moments. And I think with that knowledge, people have felt more empowered to say, hey, my community ought to have something excellent and inspiring and thought provoking. Um, and, you know, uh, perhaps this is me being New York centric, but I think back to the, uh, you know, the local garden programs in new-, in new York City in the 1980s as a real progenitor of this, where it was about taking spaces that were meant to serve the public in a, in a, in a useful and, and exciting way uh, that had been, you know, sort of uh, left not reaching their potential and finding new ways to reinvigorate them, particularly with art. And I think, uh, you know, something very important with public art is that it gives particularly children an opportunity to see things that they might not have believed are possible and think that perhaps they too one day can be an artist. And I, I think it helps validate all of these forms of creative expression on a, on a larger scale. And, and something else that is really, I think, proven to be true time and time again in this pandemic is that we all... Desperately want to interact with culture, and 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 particularly things that that evoke feelings in us, whether that be visually, through touch, through smell. Um, and I think I think it was extremely difficult for people being, you know, stuck in their homes. And we saw a major boom of people purchasing art for their residential spaces, uh, and we've seen a large increase in uh, park attendance. And I think all of this goes to show that. Um, people are really craving it and are, and are willing to put more effort than they have in the past into seeing great art. Now, simultaneously to that, we have, we have a phenomenon of, of quote unquote, high-end art becoming extraordinarily expensive. So uh, certain works that in the past may have been available to a, a still somewhat select but larger audience um, have become somewhat unattainable but even though you may not ever be able to afford a, a Deb Cass yo yourself, you can go to the Brooklyn Museum and get the essence of that experience and, and, and get to know the work on a very intimate level. Um, and I also think, you know, internally for us, uh, as probably, you know, Hubert and myself, as people who work sort of internal to this, uh, it, it's a really fun and exciting challenge to say when you're, you know, our, our, the, the audience we are specifically serving is the general public. Uh, it's very different than a gallery context. And I think it enables us to, as, as Hubert has exemplified quite literally, as well as in terms of materials, think on a larger and grander scale, uh, but also be very, very considered in that these projects, as you mentioned, um, don't come overnight. I mean, you know, even a, a gallery plans twelve to eighteen months in advance. A, a public art function can be you know, three to five years. Let alone, you know, perfecting your CNC and your manufacturing. And I think that that holistic effort that's so carefully considered can be can be really special. I mean, I still I still think back to seeing um, Simone Lee's public art on the High Line in New York and just being, you know, just just being stopped in my tracks. Um, and I, I think that's something that we can only provide in these public spaces. And and as arts creators and administrators, I think we probably have a moral obligation to to use our skills to benefit the public.
0: I think about this in in some some different terms potentially than than you do, um, especially as it comes to public art, because I remember, you know, for me, my first introduction. To public art i would say was when i was a kid and the berlin wall came down and something completely unique happened they they took chunks of the berlin wall and they turned it into what was once this thing that represented one thing now became a piece and i remember we had a little piece of the berlin wall sitting on our shelf in in the kitchen and i remember thinking that's amazing to me that 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 piece of concrete with, you know, with the the green and red spray paint that was on it once was part of a bigger tableau. And I I don't think it's ever been more galvanized for me than to see what happened post 9-11 with beams from the world trade everywhere. It went around the world. And I started thinking in advance of our conversation here that, you know, public art, in trying times, becomes more of a touch point for emotion. You know, prior to the pandemic really starting in earnest, and nobody really remembers this, but I remember exactly being a native Angelino, I remember exactly where I was when I heard that Kobe Bryant had died. And what I saw after that was absolutely fascinating. Murals popped up everywhere, just this outpouring of emotion in the form of art. then then you have, Black Lives Matter emerging into its own unique and individual form of art. And it's, it's there is something is happening and it's really amazing how, how there is this, you know, you have the difference between whimsical art and emotional art. And, you know, back to Rocket in particular, one of the things that I'm so fascinated by, not just how time met opportunity right because knowing that you've had this in the works for years you couldn't have you could not have as we've discussed you can't plan for something like this but the thing about space and mobility and going somewhere else especially after 18 19 20 months of being trapped in your homes there's just something about it and hubert i love how you describe you know sort of this this piece juxtaposed to you know a brutalist architectural backdrop it's it's fascinating to me and i'm I'm curious when you're when you're in the process of this when you're in the throes of it to say do you care isn't really what I'm asking but does it cross your mind how it's perceived or what it represents at the time it's released versus the time that you've spent working on it?
1: That's a really good question, Josh. So um, I just, that's to, to explore that question also comes to the crux of one of my struggles as an artist. And that is, am, am I creating the art as uh, as an expression of, of what's going on with me and who I am or am I getting caught up? I'll give you an example. Um, so I'm I'm very much uh, interested with with form and and how it, the form speaks to me and at a at a level let's say at, at, at a more hmm, how would it say a deeper level than conceptual thought I mean there's something that grabs when I go into a museum or I see a, a piece of work um, a Clifford's Still painting or um, for example, there's something that is just awe-inspiring. It, it grabs me it, 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 here in my heart, and and words I can, There's not there's not even words. So when I visited the Clifford Still Museum in uh, Denver, Colorado, I, I mean, once I start putting labels and words to that experience, it started to. You know, detract. I, I was just there, immersed in these amazing uh, large-scale paintings. I, I think I, I don't want to get too off track here. My job as an artist is to is to be true to, you know, what I'm trying to express, and not what somebody else might interpret it as. I, does that at all answer the question, Josh?
0: Uh, yeah, no, I, I, think it, I think it does. Yeah. If I it's may funny. build on
2: that, it, it, yeah. um, I think so. I think what, what Hubert's touched on a little bit is the fact that the, the viewer kind of has this amazing opportunity, especially uh, at least I think in, in Hubert's work to sort of uh, almost complete it for yourself and that Hubert imbues himself and particularly I think in works like Rocket, uh, I have my mm-hmm. own fascination with precision instruments. I collect film cameras. Uh, it's taken over my apartment, um, but and and I've and you know I loved cars as a kid, and I think what I see in in so much of Hubert's work uh, is an impulse that's actually very similar to to that of like an Umberto Baccioni from Italian Futurism, or or some of some of the gist of, of the Rayanist movement in, in Russia, which is the attempt through through the visual vernacular of of often precision engineering, which is this, this attempt to bring form to the way that space and time interact uh, and depict it in a way that we can we can visually make sense of. Um, and, and, and not only does that take the form of rocket, and I think back to so many amazing industrial design icons, as well as, you know, Marcel Breuer's architecture. But again, also like I, so much especially with the the pigment prints as well um i constantly find myself thinking back to uh, i might get the name slightly wrong but i believe the name of the sculpture is um it's essentially um perspectives on continuity in space from i believe 1913 by baccioni and it's it's this attempt to to render this this sequential movement which hubert can even go into to quite literally how the pigment works are made which i think reveals this interest in Rocket and the fact that I don't see it sort of as a stagnant object. I see it as something with the potential for, for movement, um, but, but it's this idea of imbuing something with energy. And if the artist does their job and the, the team around the artist, whether that be a gallery, museum curators, you name it, we're all doing our jobs. Everybody can walk away with something both specific and also universal. And I think that's the, that's the real mark of both a great artist and a great curator.
0: This is Curated Chill. You are listening to my conversation with artist Hubert Phipps and art curator Ty Cooperman. We'll be right back. I am constantly in awe by the resources available to the design trade. One of the best and most iconic, the a and Building in New York. If you are in the business, you already know the a and Building is New York's best resource for kitchens, baths, and fine furnishings. Featuring the city's largest selection of kitchen, bath, appliances, cabinetry, tile flooring, carpeting, shading technology, lighting, and contract furniture. Where luxury design defies expectations. How do they do that? By housing a collection of the world's most elite design brands in 40 showrooms. Explore and be inspired. The a and building is where the world's best designers go, and they're open to the public. World-class creatives know where to get world-class design products. Find your bliss and the showrooms that can show you how to get it at New York's crown jewel of design, the a and Building. For additional information, find them online, adbuilding.com, and in the real world at 150 East 58th Street, New York City. Now, back to my conversation with artist Hubert Phipps and art curator Ty Cooperman dive a little deeper into that relationship between artist and curator and the the yin and yang of it and how they work together and sort of what how you manage there's a lot that takes place behind the scenes a lot of expectations um a lot it's it's a it's a detailed complex relationship can you just sort of touch on that a little bit i mean you know i
2: there are many different approaches. Uh, mine is definitely very hands-on. I, I truly think of all of all of the artists I work with as like my children, where you know, I would I would jump off the cliff for all of them. Um, but but it is this, it's this really complex network of of you're not only dealing oftentimes with somebody's ability to to pay rent and 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 you know be, be economically satiated, but it's a very emotional and vulnerable task to dedicate yourself. Uh, to just putting yourself out there for the world at large, um, and 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 simultaneously, I think I think it's a matter of you know, and so much of it comes down to the artist, but um, oftentimes just helping them see their own value or understand their own uh, their own brilliance often, and and I think a great a great curator as well as a great art agent really understands the where the artist is coming from and helps. Translate that into something that doesn't require expertise or a master's degree to be rendered lucid, um, and and it's this really fun, I think, give and take. And Hubert, in particular, you know, uh, having having seen you know what he's put together previously, and even at how he and I are talking about his upcoming solo feature at our, at our Palm Beach gallery, uh, Hubert has a real eye for curation, which makes my job endlessly more fun in that uh, it's, it's great to have a sounding board in that he and I are going to, to inherently approach these works differently in that he takes them from their nascent stage and translates them into something palpable, whereas I translate them from something palpable into something uh, that can be collectively as well as individually understood and, and rendered into text. And I think one of the funniest divides you see in the best way possible, one might even call it an ideal division of labor, is uh, artists, artists so often have trouble explaining the verbally that experience with, with their own work and other work they're so inspired by. And, and our job is to take that essence and translate it often into something verbal or, or um, experiential. And you know, I think the, the greatest compliment, I think a, a curator can get from an artist is saying, I could have never thought of this uh, but I couldn't have done it better myself, and I think uh, it takes a lot of trust. And Hubert can for sure elaborate on this. Uh, it takes a lot of trust to to hand someone a body of work and say, uh, present my basically my children to the world, um, and 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 it really is an exercise in trust. In that I think first and foremost, a good artist curator relationship is built on a mutual understanding of trust, uh, respect, and also passion. Uh, we're all doing this because we love it. Nobody chooses a, a career in fine arts because it's the pragmatic thing to do. Um, it, it, it has to be something you, you couldn't imagine doing, you know, not, not having in your life. Um,
1: would you like to elaborate on that a little, Hubert? Well, a couple of things that you mentioned that really resonates with me, and I think it's important as an artist um, because of the, uh, the, the self-doubt of, of my work and, and um, through the years, so when Tyler says, hey, you know, one of his jobs is, is, is to bring to the attention to the artists, you know, the, the validity of the work. And, you know, that was such an impediment to me moving forward uh, with with my work, uh, because I um, it took me a while to gain the confidence, if you will, um, and um, that it was, or or to dis- um, how do I say, to um, dismiss the belief in any way that, that this work that I'm doing was not good enough or valid at, at that any point in time. Um, my work has involved it has evolved. Um, speaking to, you know, what Tyler said about curating, um, absolutely, so um, so I, I'm giving, I'm putting a lot of trust into Tyler and um, for you know, just not the curation, but the but the whole um, spectrum of the presentation. And from the moment that I met him in Brooklyn earlier this year, I just felt this really, I felt this strong synergy and, and chemistry. And um, and that's where it starts. And then I've seen I've seen the show he put together uh, for Brian Kenny. Um, I've seen, um, you know, I've listened to him, and I have a level of confidence moving forward that, that he's just going to do an amazing job. And I'm happy to, you know, um, to be a part of that curation, um, but I want to see, you know, I, I, I appreciate, you know, that other perspective, the perspective of, of a true curator, uh, uh, an adept curator brings so much to the table presentation uh, it's 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 almost equal in terms of the experience that that we all want to present to the audience
2: I absolutely agree Um, and 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 so much of it is the is the most minute details uh that where you know the amount of time I spend thinking about the color temperature of light bulbs would probably drive a normal person insane, um, and but but it really it really comes down to those every you know every little detail and, and uh, I've been really lucky to have I think really excellent curatorial mentors, um, particularly our gallery owner Mike DePaola, uh, whose each one of his homes is basically a museum, um, and particularly uh, I, I learned a lot actually from Maynard Monroe, who's the curator of the Bunker Museum. Uh, which shows the collection of Beth Rudin DeWoody, um, and and I think by working so closely with Maynard, especially on projects for Mike, I I gained this a, a really unique eye into working from a vast array not only of knowledge but you know when when you deal with people like um, Mike and Beth, there's just there's a the treasure trove of work to pull from, and you can kind of you can kind of you know curate your wildest dreams, and you have to be very selective and filter down and you realize that there are, there are schemes and techniques that work. Um, and you know, so much of that is, is thinking about a space holistically in that um, you know great, great art can be great art in any museum, but that doesn't mean it's going to make sense in every home or every park or every installation. And, and it's about understanding really your environment. And that's where I think, especially for something like a gallery show or a public installation, Whomever you're working with really needs to intimately know their space and know the dynamics. And that's not only things like lighting and wall height and your center line, but also what kind of foot traffic, what kind of flow does your space encourage? What are your peak hours? How is that going to affect people's moods? What kind of colors are going to resonate with the way the sun looks in your particular locale at that time of day? Um, and really, really just taking a, a multi-sensory and multi-factored approach to to all of this. and um, you know sometimes I see curators uh, start projects remotely where like they get a 3d render of their space and they're making little squares and illustrator and whatnot. and and don't get me wrong, by no means am I a, am I a technophobe. Uh, again, you know, like my earliest background was in in programming, but I'm a big believer in actually curating an exhibition in the physical space. And, and I actually, all of all of my curation, once it leaves my brain and sort of enters the world, starts on the floor of the gallery. Um, and, and it's me spatially arranging things and, and, and sort of doing the full loop, if you will, of my spaces, and, and really trying to get an intimate understanding of not only how I move through space with the work, but how it complements that experience. Um, you know, with with a lot of figurative work, that that often means thinking about gaze, and and even if you want to get particularly technical, thinking about directional lighting, and uh, at what time of day was this? Is this painting supposed to be, you know, uh, depicting natural light? Um, but but with with uh, abstract work and that which sort of has abstract elements, while while it's still I think remaining very very human and somewhat figurative, um, particularly like Hubert's work is you get to think a lot about dynamism and, and movement, uh, not just through space, but sort of in each work. So when I think about the pigment prints, I'm quite literally thinking about the ocular experience as you sift through. Um, for uh, Hubert, I don't want to give too many details, but for example, for some of these sculptures we'll be showing in Palm Beach, uh, I've been thinking a lot about what material is going to go underneath your feet as you encounter it and how much traction is going to be beneath it. So whether or not we can sort of control whether or not you have to slow down in front of a piece and where. And, you know, sometimes I feel kind of insane talking about these things and that uh, it, it sounds, I feel like from an outside perspective, it must sound so silly and minute, but I, I, I really think it makes the world of a difference. Uh, in, in Palm Beach last season, we did an exhibition called Saturday in the park named after the uh, Chicago song where each gallery was themed with a part of the day. And what I really loved, albeit you know, six weeks in hearing the same soundscape, the gallerists get a little antsy, but uh, we actually took sounds from national parks all across the country and uh, parsed out which bird calls and, and sounds of nature were from each time of day and used 360 degree directional audio to create uh, this really fun meandering experience where despite there potentially being multiple, you know, the appearance of multiple pathways and the appearance of choice um, through curatorial choices, we're we're essentially able to to make obvious what anyone, anyone would do. And I think empowering people with the perception of choice, as well as with a guided experience and really knowledgeable staff who are willing to be friendly and deeply understand the work makes makes a world of a difference, and 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 frankly, if you're not doing those things, you're probably not doing right by your artists.
0: It's interesting to me, and I'm, I may take this in a weird direction, but it's funny to me because Hubert, you know, we your background in racing, and and my my passion and love and my family history and in in motorsports as well, and you know, it's interesting because Ty, as I hear you and Hubert talking about this. I'm reminded, or at least I'm thinking about the whole process of, of putting together a show is very much like a race. And I'm the way that I'm kind of thinking through this as you're explaining it is you know Hubert, I see you as the driver and Ty you as the crew chief and everything where you're defining, the material and the tactile nature of a floor is the same way that one would choose tire composition. And the way that you're looking at, you know, lighting is the same way that you're figuring, you know, what, what you're going to have on the visor, you know, if you're going directly into the sun or out of the sun, Um, you know, your, your, your fuel comp, it's just, you know, it's so amazing. And then Hubert you as the, as the driver, I think, this is sort of the secondary performative nature of the work itself. So the work that you're doing is very much an individual process, you know, the same way that a, you know, a professional driver or a professional athlete or artist of any type is continually working on their craft. You know, when you see a football player playing on Sunday afternoon, they didn't just come out of the stands, put the gear on and go play. You know, they spent 20 plus years working on their craft and themselves, a driver, same thing. You know, you will walk a track, you'll walk a mile and a half trioval, and and understand what the, what the composition and the slope and what the camber needs to be and what all of these details that go into it. And so I'm fascinated by this element, this performative element, the things that people, viewers, visitors, never get to see they only show up on on game day they show up on race day you know and they see everything that's put together and i I think the process is just is just fascinating to me is that just a a weird description of of what this is
1: i couldn't think of a much better analogy josh and i'll tell you let me expound upon that so um and and I, I, i love what you just said um, so as, as the artist, um, uh, I'm going to look at the space and, um, and when I'm, and I'm going to look at the space down at, uh, at, at TW Fine Art on, on, on Worth Avenue here in just a few days. I've seen the space, but I need to go back there and study the space. And that's what you were speaking to in terms of the, the race car driver, studying the track, walking the track, talking to other drivers about how they or your teammate, if you will, um, you know, can you take this corner flat out? What's, you know, what's a what's a different way to look at this? So it's really important to me to understand the space. So I know to get an idea of what am I bringing to this exhibition in terms of scale. The other thing I would mention is that um, you, what you said about when, 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 the, uh, when the doors open on opening night and, and this idea that um, all this that went before. So, you know, I'm tasked with, and my team and my collaborators, including the galleries, everybody involved, we're tasked with, um, you know, imagining the exhibition, creating the artwork, getting it framed, building the pedestals, Packing it, creating the artwork. Um, we do this in house. Um, we we create and we ship. We pack. I've got the only a trailer, Josh. Really it's, great. It's a forty <laughs> footer. It's a forty footer. And people look at that; they think it's a race car trailer. And we travel, and I drive it. I'm driving it down with 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 my crew, and we install and we deinstall and. The, I mean, we're going down there with our bottles of Advil because there's a lot of exertion and aches and pains and joints and 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 these are, these are, uh, you know, jam packed days, and especially when you've got a shorter timeline. So that that is so true, and we want and, we, and I don't care. That, that the audience would necessarily know about that and appreciate that. I think I can speak for myself, but I think, Tyler, you would share the same sentiment. You just want, when, when you on opening night, you just want that amazing experience. And, and that's what we do. And that's what the race car team does. They're working all winter long. They're, they're tweaking or building a new car. They're out there testing, they're working on graphics, they're working on the, the, the driver's training, the pit crews going through their training. Um, they're maintaining all their equipment and they're improving and they're lightning. And, and it's just, it's, it's almost the same thing. It's the same process and it is performance-based. What we do is as much of performance, I believe, so the race car team is interested in shaving off tenths of seconds of finding those, those milliseconds. And I think, you know, the, the, art, the, the team that I'm involved with, with Tyler is, is about maximizing that, that experience and really bringing something very impactful uh, to the audience.
2: Absolutely. I completely agree. And I think, uh, to take it one step further, even, uh, I think what we do particularly with exhibitions is similar to a race in that there are pit stops and there are times where a wheel flies off the car and you have to make on the fly decisions and you have to sometimes pull in audible and also use a mixture of past experience, common sense, and, and your gut to, to decide what the right decision is. And, um, I think in that way, art, art and racing are actually quite similar. But, and there, there, there's this element of duration in that, um, you know, even though perhaps like when our door is open, the race doesn't end for five or six weeks, uh, all said and done, there really is that same concept of having to maintain your stamina. And, and uh, as, the ra- you know, as the race goes on, so to speak, uh, continue to refine what you're doing, uh, whether that even just be your sales pitch, or, or or the way that you're discussing the work or the way you're you're again you're lighting it um, but it's a it's a constant process of refinement and enhancement and and carefully considered you know internal self critique
0: I want to Tyler follow up to you as well I wanted to find out you know as you work on this Palm Beach exhibition, and when you work with an artist like Hubert, who, you know, Hubert, you like your work touched, you know, you, you like people that's part of it is the tactile nature of, yeah, I've heard you say in the past that, that you like when the, when the work is touched and, and enjoyed in that aspect as well, which is completely, you know, different in, I would, I would say, you know, Ty, help me out here, but 90% of fine arts, you know, 99% that don't touch it, you know, look at it from a distance, certainly don't touch it. When you work with an artist like this, does that change how, how you view putting together the exhibition?
2: Absolutely. I mean, that's, it's, it's critical. Um, the, you know, and, and, tactility is something I find myself constantly thinking about as somebody who sells visual art. Um, but, but I'm, I'm a big believer in taking a multi-sensory approach. One, not only because it enables people who have visual impairments, more opportunities to really fully participate in the art, but two, when your practice is materials, you know, so, so, so cognizant of materials, and one might even say materials driven, like a Barry X Ball or a, or a Hubert Phipps, uh, there's something about getting to intimately understand its medium that I, think, that I think gives a more well-rounded understanding of the work. Like I, you know, I try not to touch things at other people's galleries, um, but uh, I, I, I smell, if it's not behind glass, I will, get, I will get up real close and smell it because I've sort of over time learned that I can, I can parse out materials and techniques through particularly with like paint. I can, I can learn a lot about a work just by how it smells. So I'm, I'm always looking for interesting ways to incorporate a, a, a multi-sensory experience, but going, I think, more with perhaps what you were where you were intending this to go, and if so, I apologize. Um, but uh, it, there's a lot of things to consider, not only in that uh, a center line on your wall has to be considered. If you don't want people to touch things and it's oh so tempting to touch, I'm probably gonna boost that that, that center line on the wall a little bit, just to make it a little clearer that, uh, and, you know, obfuscate it just a little more, perhaps from small hands. Um, but on that on, on that same note, uh, nobody is better at touching work than children and nobody is more excited to get to touch artwork than children. And if that's what you want, you need to be very sure that you put it at a level they can reach and that they can engage with in a manner that isn't going to damage the work or hurt them. Um, so, so, so there are lots of, and, you know, that's just one of many considerations. There's also the, the matter of if I know things are going to be touched because, you know, I, 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 my background is, is, is somewhat in like painting conservation and a very technical side of art as well. I'm always thinking about the materials and the, and the ability to conserve the work and keep it, you know, archivally stable. Um, so, but my approach is definitely rather than to say, no, don't touch it to, to say, okay, what kind of. Um, non-abrasive cleaning product can I find to enable that sensation, but also preserve sort of the quote unquote uh, purity of the piece in a very Western sense, if you will. Um, but there's also something very particular about that idea of art in that if you, if you look back to um, a lot of really great African sculptures, um, particularly those that have to do with fertility, um, and twins in a couple different, uh, couple different groups, uh, they were often patinated or, or with with uh, you know various uh, bloods of animals and, and offerings. And when they were brought back initially to Europe, many of the art dealers you know, were like, "Oh, gross!" and and took all of that off. And and in, you know what they didn't realize is they had actually just sort of wiped all of the magic off of those pieces by by removing that that patination and buildup of, 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 you know, a, a marker of the lives that this work has lived. Um, so, so not every work has to play by the same rules, uh, which, which is quite fun. And I would say on my end of things, where it gets complicated is when there are certain works that we desperately would love for you to touch and have this very intimate hands-on experience with, but there are also pieces, if you touch all the pigment will fall off. So, so, so it's a matter of again curatorially figuring out what am I using to sort of buttress these experiences, uh, if, if if even they should be adjacent, and how how can I create context clues without having to scream it at someone to to render obvious the way I want them to experience the work. Um, my goal is always to use as little written text as possible. We always have it as an option. But, but I always like to minimize it. And it's sort of the same logic as Ikea instructions, believe it or not, in that it's, it's about being as universal as possible. Um, and especially in somewhere like Palm Beach, where it's uh, such a multi, you know, Southern Florida is so multilingual. Um, we would really be doing a disservice to a large amount of the community were we to do elaborate, you know, simply verbal dis- you know, and, and, and written descriptions in English. That, that would be somewhat ex- exclusionary and, and, and I think kind of silly. Um, so we really, we, we try to put all of the, as much emphasis into the layout and the way that uh, we talk about the space. We're definitely not like most galleries in that we, you know, any piece on the walls, we know everything about each and every one. I can tell you all about Galen, who's right behind me. He's awesome. Um, but, uh, you know, there's, there's a level of knowledge we bring without being sort of stuffy about it we can help guide you and say as little as possible until you want us to fill you in. And and that's really my goal. Um, And especially as, you know, I work with a lot of artists who are multilingual now and um, it's something I'm really trying to be cognizant of is this idea of universal design. Um, And I think what Hubert, especially, you know, sculptures like Rocket do so well is that it's a, it is in, in the most basic level of semiotics, it is it is it is a very universal design in that it's something I think everyone, whatever your experience on Earth in, in, in 2021, you're going to have some sort of cultural resonance with, with the shape, the material, the texture, the scale. Um and 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 that that I think is really beautiful. And and not all artists are are particularly gifted at that. Um, but again, it's Especially with work like Hubert's, I feel a very strong obligation to to take it even further. Cause he, you know, he he's basically set me up for a home run and I have to hit it out of the park.
0: I love that. You know what's funny is I I would I would venture to guess that we have not had this many sports analogies in a fine arts conversation in quite some time, if ever.
2: Anyone who knows me is going to be shocked. This is not my <laughs> usual go to metaphor base, but but again, you know, I, I think that also speaks to the universality of this sort of experience um, in that, again, if, if you if you are carefully considered, there are so many similarities between all of these interests. And and kind of, again, going back to what I was saying before, I think there's something unique about this interest in both precision instruments as well as precision Engineering and design this that, that unites things like racing and aircrafts and aerospace, cameras, even even you know, you, you think about the heyday of, uh, of Dieter Ram's products of Braun, there's just something endlessly beautiful about it and and, and it seeks towards that universal.
0: Hey, um, Hubert, what is what is on your what is on your draft table now? that we might be seeing in a couple of years. Anything you can talk
1: about? Yeah, so I I would like to talk about that. It's almost, um, I've been, so I have a a vision, Josh, uh, for a project that is narrative based, but the genesis, and I think you might get this because you're a car guy. Um, So I was driving down with my crew let me see, this was in early 19 uh, to install the, the show at the Coral Spring Museum of Art. And my assistants and my friend, there were four of us in, in the crew cab of this uh, F-350 dually barreling down the road with a 40-foot trailer with 60 works of art. And what were we talking about? We were talking about the Donk Phenomenon. That's D O N K. Josh, are you familiar with this aesthetic phenomena in the automobile culture? No. Okay, so you probably are. It You maybe not be associating that name with it, but you've seen them. They are, they are uh, early to mid 1980s Chevrolet Impalas with 40-inch rims. Uh, uh, oh, sure. Yeah. Sure. Okay. You absolutely. You know exactly what I'm talking about. And yeah, how absolutely. Over the top. So this is an Afri- This is uh, this is primarily an African American uh, as uh, automobile aesthetic phenomenon that I find really quirky, wild, crazy. There's so many things about what they what Donk represents, and that's what they call it Donk D O N K, which is a corruption possibly in in this cultural's lore, possibly a uh, a corruption of the you know the Impala symbol on the Chevrolet Impala that that somebody might have interpreted that as a donkey and then some donk. So there's this whole interesting background. So we are driving down the road, having a ball discussing donk design and how and we were just taking it further. I can't tell you we, I was I was laughing so hard and it's not that we're making fun out of it. I'm with a group that that we get along. We're all car guys. But you know, at the end of the day, at the end of that trip, I started I said, wait a minute. this is so interesting. Um, and I have this idea, Josh, um, and it was a genesis for a, a story and narrative, uh, two main characters. And, and one, and so um, Donk is also, so when I delved into and did a little bit of research into the Donk automobiles, there are people that are spending hundreds and thousands of dollars donking out automobiles, okay? And some of them, the more obvious are, are uh, rap stars. And um, anyway, so I have created a story in, in my head and it's going to chronicle two individuals. One is a, these are fictional characters, one is a rap star. The other one is a, more of a layman who mows the rap star's Beverly Hills lawn. And this rap star, as the story goes, he is, you know, he is burdened by all the, uh, the stresses related to paparazzi and his arrival. Uh, raps, musicians and gangs, the violence, the all this hoopla. He comes back to his Beverly Hills mansion and his, some of us mow the lawn for a meditative relief from life. This rap star in the story watches. He likes watching Howard mow the lawn on a zero turn mower. And they form this unlikely friendship through the Howard, the, the, the lawn guy, has to see the rap star's car collection, of which many are donked out over-the-top automobiles. And they connect through the automobiles, and they, have, they form this unlikely friendship, a real bond. And the rap star uh, donks out this zero-turn mower and so what I'm creating now is I took my zero my zero turn mower. It's been scanned. I'm working with Digital Atelier. We are creating the most incredible sculpture, my opinion, of a donked out mower with with Howard the model on it, and and that will be the centerpiece of this exhibition. Um, as I envision the, the exhibition, that centerpiece life-size uh sculptures in the center and on one side of the room it chronicles the history of the rap star depicted visually both in 2d and three-dimensional objects of art and on the other side depicting the path through life of howard the guy that mows the rap stars lawn. and this is so rich of a a ground for me to explore through symbology, everything from uh, music, to money, to race, to you name it, automobiles, um, social uh, structures such as capitalism through, if things as simple as the dollar sign symbol or a Bitcoin symbol, or a CBD sticker that might go on the the zero turn mower. It's a complete departure from what I've uh, what I've been doing, and um, and that's underway. And,
2: <clears throat> excuse me, if I may jump in. Um, I think something Hubert's act or going off for me in my head at least is, and, and perhaps this again exemplifies the artist curator relationship. Is when Hubert explains this to me. Uh, when I sort of digest it, what I what I get out of it is, is, Hubert is really ruminating on the way that, particularly at this stage of contemporary, you know, whatever you want to call it, late stage twenty first century capitalism in America, we are so deeply indebted culturally to to the Black experience and particularly Black Americans in the way that we we not only think about what's glamorous and luxurious, but also Beautiful and and um, I think for for the art world there's been this sort of um, really really tough in that you know moment in that nobody wants at least nobody who's well intentioned uh, wants to make anyone feel lesser and I think as you know particularly as a you know as a white as a white male administrator art administrator I'm always thinking about how can I um, valorize and 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 bring and you know opportunities for the for for not only the black experience but I think the true American experience and the non-linear, non-singular manner in which that exists into fruition. And I think um, there's something there's something really amazing about owning that respect and that love for a culture and and that that comes from. You know um people of culture who for so long were were seen as lesser by virtue of their of their of their art forms and their skill sets and you know I, I think the way we've seen uh in particular quilting become just again as it deserves to be uh one of the most sought after fine art forms in in the country i mean you know you think about like a beast butler who uh when Claire Oliver, who's one of my favorite, uh, gallerists, the, the you know, the show she does piece of pieces quilts just bring me to tears. And I think, uh, Hubert's getting at this really interesting next stage for us all as, as a fine art community to say, how can we have these interesting and sticky and sometimes potentially uncomfortable conversations in a way that is meant to enlighten and inspire without being fake or fraudulent. Um, and 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 that's you know i i'm very excited to see to see the finished product and again you know aesthetically it hits on so many things i love and i think hubert uh is in a unique position because you know he 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 is so well established in philanthropy and the and the institutionalized form of art having hubert say this as well um you know he he's an extremely valuable ally and and i think uh it's it's a great opportunity to to incorporate a lot of people into this experience. I know Hubert and I had been talking about ways to um, perhaps bring this to multiple communities, even and 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 involve local uh, local communities and really get them involved. So I, I think it could. I, I think it'll be really amazing. I'm, I'm quite excited to see, uh, as always, what Hubert uh, brings to fruition.
0: That is really exciting. I I love that. I I can't wait to see that that either. And here's what I'd like to do. Um, it, it, Ty, I would definitely like to circle back with you both uh, at the opening of Palm Beach because, Absolutely. you know, po- post this conversation, I would love to circle back again and and do sort of a, that follow up and and really go through how this conversation led to what you put, to, not led to, but how, you know, the next chapter of what you put together. I'm excited to see that. And I would, I would love to, uh, to see what you do. And, and then down the line um, would love to be a part of, uh, of hearing about this, this later exhibition. Cause I think, you know, especially yes, I'm a car guy, but I'm also a native Angelino. You know, so I, I I was, I was in a car club when I was in high school. My dad was in a car club when he was in high school. Uh, So, you know, it's, it's especially for Angelinos, it's a big part of the culture and um, I cannot wait to see what you do with it. So this was great, guys. Ty, Hubert, thank you very much for the time. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Josh. Thank you, Josh. Thank you, Hubert. Thank you, Ty. Amazing chat. Phenomenal work. Thank you to our partners and Curated Chill sponsors, and most importantly, thank you for taking the time to enjoy Curated Chill, the Aspire Design and Home podcast. Thank you for listening to the show and loving sublime design the way we do. For more inspiration, visit us at AspireMetro.com,
1: and until next time, come back to chill.